Section 6 of The Quest of the Golden Girl by Richard Le Gallienne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by William Jones, Bonita Springs, Florida. Comprised of Book 2, Chapters 1 through 5. The Quest of the Golden Girl. Book 2, Chapter 1. In which I decide to be young again. Yes, I said to myself, the lad is quite right. I will follow his advice. I'm afraid I was in danger of developing into a sad cynic with a taste for the humor of this world. What should have been a lofty high-souled pilgrimage, only less transcendental than that of the Holy Grail itself, has so far failed, no doubt, because I have undertaken it too much in the wanton spirit of a troubadour. I will grow young and serious again. Yeah, why not? I'll take a vow of youth. One's age is entirely a matter of the imagination. From this moment I am no longer thirty. Thirty falls from me like a hideous dream. My back straightens again at the thought. My silvering hair blackens once more. My eyes, a few months ago lacklustre and sunken, grow bright and full again, and the whites are clear as the finest porcelain. Wainy, wainy, Mephistophele. Your Faust is young again, young, young, and with a boy's heart, open once more to all the influences of the mighty world. I bring down my stick upon the ground with a mighty ring of resolution, and the miracle is done. Who would take me for thirty now? From this moment I abjure pessimism and cynicism in all their forms, put from my mind all considerations of the complexities of human life, unravel all by a triumphant optimism which no statistics can abash or criticism dishearten. I likewise undertake to divest myself entirely of any sense of humor that may have developed within me during the baneful experiences of the last ten years, and, in short, will consent for the future to be nothing that is not perfectly perfect and pure. These, I take it, are the fundamental conditions of being young again, and as for the quest it shall forthwith be undertaken in an entirely serious and high-minded spirit. From this moment I am on the lookout for a really transcendental attachment. No bright-eyed barmaid, however refined, need apply. Ladies who are prodigal of their white petticoats are no longer fit company for me. Indeed, I shall no longer look upon the petticoat unless I am able first entirely to spiritualize it. It must first be disinfected of every earthly thought. Yes, I am once more a young man, sound in wind and limb, with not a tooth or an illusion lost, my mind tabula rasa, my heart to be had for the asking. Oh, come, ye merry, merry maidens, the fairy prince is on the fairy road, insipit vita nuova. So, in the lovely rapture of a newborn resolution, and is there any rapture like it, 
Nature has no more intoxicating illusion than that of turning over a new leaf, or beginning a new life from today. I sprang along the road with a caroling heart, quite forgetting that Apuleius and Fielding and Boccaccio were still in my knapsack, not to speak of the petticoat. End of chapter one. Book two, chapter two. At the sign of the singing stream. Apuleius and Fielding and Boccaccio, bad companions for a petticoat, I'm afraid, bad companions, too, for so young a man as I had now become. However, as I say, I had for the time forgotten that pagan company, or in my puritanic zeal I might have thrown them all to be washed clean in the upland stream whose pure waters one might fancy were fragrant from their sunny day among the ferns and the heather, fragrant to the eye indeed, if may one so speak, with the shaken meal of the meadow-sweet. The stream had been the good angel of my thoughts all the day, keeping them ever moving and ever fresh, cleansing and burnish them quite an open-air laundry of the mind. We were both making for the same little town, it appeared, and as the sun was setting we reached it together. I entered the town over the bridge, and the stream under it, washing the walls of the high-piled, many-gabled old inn, where I proposed to pass the night. I should hear it still rippling on with its gentle harpsichord tinkle as I stretched myself down among the cool lavender sheets and little by little let slip the multifarious world. The inn-windows beamed cheerily, a home of ruddy rest. Having ordered my dinner and found my room, I threw down my knapsack, and then came out again to smoke an antiprandial pipe, listening to the even song of the stream, and think great thoughts. The stream was still there, and singing the same sweet old song, you could hear it long after it was out of sight, in the gathering darkness, like an old nurse humming lullabies in the twilight. The dinner was good, the wine was old, and, oh, the rest was sweet. Nothing fills one with so exquisite a weariness as a day spent in good resolutions and great thoughts. There is something perilously sensuous in the relaxation of one's muscles, both of mind and body, after a day thus well spent. Lighting up my pipe once more, and drawing to the fire, I suddenly realized a sense of loneliness. Of course I was lonely for a book, Apuleius or Fielding or Boccaccio. An hour ago they had seemed dangerous companions, for so lofty a mood, but now, under the gentle influences of dinner, the mood had not indeed changed, but mellowed. So to say, we would split the difference between the ideal and the human, and be, say, twenty-five. It was in this genial attitude of mind that I strode up the quaint circular staircase to fetch Fielding from my room, and shade of Tom Jones. What should be leaving my room as I advanced to enter it, but, well, it's no use. Resolutions are all very well. But facts are facts, especially when they're natural. And here was I, face to face with the most natural, 
little natural fact, and with all the most charming and merry-eyed, that, well, in short, as I came to enter my room, I was confronted by the roundest, ruddiest little chambermaid ever created for the trial of mortal frailty, and the worst of it was that her merry eye was in partnership with a merry tongue. Indeed, for some unexplained reason, she was bubbling over with congested laughter, the reason for which mere embarrassment set one inquiring. At last, between little gushes of laughter which shook her plump shoulders in a way that aroused wistful memories of Hebe, she archly asked me, with mock solemnity, if I should need a lady's maid. Certainly, <laughs> I replied with inane promptitude, for I had no notion of her drift. But then she ran off in a scurry of laughter, and still puzzled, I turned into my room to find, neatly hung over the end of the bed, nothing less than the dainty petticoat and silk stockings of Sylvia Joy. You can't imagine the color of my cheeks at the discovery. No doubt I was already the laughing stock of the whole inn. What folly! What a young vixen! Oh, what's to be done? Pay my bill and sneak off at once to the next town? But how pass through the grinning line of boots and waiter and chambermaid and ironically respectful landlord and landlady in the hall? But while I thus deliberated, something soft pressed in at the door, and making a sudden start, I had the little baggage who had brought about my dilemma a prisoner in my arms. I stayed some days at this charming old inn for amaryllis oh yes you may be sure her name was amaryllis had not betrayed me and indeed she may have some share in my retrospect of the inn as one of the most delightful which i encountered anywhere in my journey would you like to know its name well i know it as the singing stream if you can find it under that name you are welcome and should you chance to be put into bedroom number twenty-six you can think of me and how i used to lie awake listening to the stream rippling beneath the window with its gentle harpsichord tinkle and little by little letting slip the multifarious world and if anything about this chapter should seem to contradict the high ideals of the chapter preceding it i can only say that though the episode should not rigidly fulfill the conditions of the transcendental, nothing could have been more characteristic of that early youth to which I had vowed myself. Indeed, I congratulated myself, as I looked my last at the sign of the singing stream, that this had been quite in my early manner. End of Book Two, Chapter Two Book Two, Chapter Three in which I save a useful life. Though I had said good-bye to the inn, the stream and I did not part company at the inn door, but continued for the best part of a morning to be fellow-travellers. Indeed, having led me to one pleasant adventure, its purpose, I afterwards realized, was to lead me to another, and then go on about its own bright business. I don't think either of us had much idea where we were or whither we were bound, 
our guiding principle seemed to be to get as much sunshine as possible and to find the easiest road we avoided dull sandy levels and hard rocky places with the same instinctive dexterity we gloomed together through dark dinkles and came out on sunny reaches with the same gilded magnificence there are days when every stream is pactolus and every man is croesus and thanks to that first and greatest of all alchemists the sun the morning i write of was a morning when to breathe was gold and to see was silver and to breathe and see was all one asked it was the first of may and the world shone like a great illuminated letter with which that father of artists the sun was making splendid his missile of the season the month of may was ever his tour de force each year he has strained and stimulated his art to surpass himself seeking ever a finer and a brighter gold a more celestial azure never had his gold been so golden his azure so dazzlingly clear and deep as on this particular may morning while his fancy simply ran riot in the marginal decorations of woodland and spinney quaint embroidered flowers and copses full of exquisitely painted and wonderfully trained birds of song it was indeed a day for nature to be proud of so seductive was the sunshine that even the shy trout leapt at noonday eager apparently to change his silver for gold quote, o silver fish in the silver stream o golden fish in the golden gleam tell me tell me tell me true shall i find my girl if i follow you i suppose the reader never makes nonsense rhymes from sheer gladness of heart nursery doggerel to keep time with the rippling of the stream or the dancing of the sun or the beating of his heart the gibberish of delight as i hummed this nonsense a trout at least three pounds in weight whom you would know again anywhere leapt a yard out of the water and i took it in my absurd sun-soaked heart as a good omen as though he had said follow and see i had no will but to follow no desire but to see all the same though i affected to take him seriously i had little suspicion how much that trout was to mean to me yes within the course of a very few moments indeed i had hardly strolled on for another quarter of a mile when i was suddenly aroused from wool-gathering by his loud cries for help looking up i saw him flashing desperately in mid-air a lovely foot of writhing silver in another second he was swung through the sunlight and laid up breathing hard in a death-bed of buttercups and daisies there is not a moment to be lost if i were to repay the debt of gratitude which in a flash i had seen that i owed him madam i said breathlessly springing forward as a heavenly being was coldly tearing the hook from the gills of the unlucky trout though i am a stranger will you do me a great favour it is a matter of life and death she looked up at me with some surprise but with a fine fearless glance and almost immediately said certainly what can i do 
spare the life of that trout it is a singular request she replied and one she smiled self-sacrificing indeed for an angler to grant for he weighs at least three pounds however since he seems a friend of yours here goes and with the gladdest most grateful sound in the world the happy smack of a fish back home again in the water after an appalling three minutes spent on land that prophetic trout was once more an active unit in god's populous universe now that's good of you i said with thankful eyes and shows a kind heart and kind hearts they say are more than coronets she replied merrily indulging in that derisive quotation which seems to be the final reward of the greatest poets for a moment there was a silence during which i confess to wondering what i should say next however she supplied my place but of course she said you owe it to me after this touching display of humanitarianism to entertain me with your reason for interposing between me and my just trout was it one of those wonderful talking fishes out of the arabian nights or are you merely an angler yourself and did you begrudge such a record catch to a girl i see i replied that you will understand me that trout was so to speak out of the arabian nights only five minutes ago it was a may-day madness of mine to think that he leaped out of the water and gave me a highly important message so i begged his life from a mere fancy it was just a whim which i trust you will excuse a whim so you are a follower of the great god whim she replied with somewhat of an eager interest in her voice how nice to meet a fellow worshipper do women ever have whims i respectfully asked i don't know about other women she replied indeed i'm afraid i'm unnatural enough to take no interest in them at all but as for me well what nonsense tell me some more about the trout what was the wonderful message he seemed to give you or perhaps i oughtn't to ask i'm afraid i said it would hardly translate into anything approaching common sense did i ask for common sense she retorted it was true she hadn't but then i couldn't with any respect for her tell her the trout's message or with any respect for myself recall those atrocious doggerel lines in my dilemma i caught sight of a pretty book lying near her fishing basket and averted the talk by venturing to ask its name tis of ucassin and nicolette she replied with something in her voice which seemed to imply that the tender old story would be familiar to me my memory served me for once gallantly i answered by humming half to myself the lines from the prologue quote, sweet the song the story sweet there is no man hearkens it no man living neath the sun so outwearied so fordone sick and woeful worn and sad but is healed but is glad tis so sweet how charming of you to know it she laughed 
you are the only man in this county or the next or the next who knows it i'm sure are the women of the county more familiar with it i replied but tell me about the trout she once more persisted at the same moment however there came from a little distance the musical tinkle of a bell that sounded like silver a fairy-like and almost startling sound it is my lunch she explained i'm a worshipper of the great god whim too and close by here i have a little summer house full of books and fishing lines and other childishness where when my whim is to be lonely i come and play at solitude if you'll be content with rustic fare and promise to be amusing it would be very pleasant if you had joined me oh most prophetic and agreeable trout was it not like the old fairy tales the young help us and we'll help you of psyche and the ants it had been the idlest whim for me to save the life of that poor trout there was no real pity in it for two pins i had been just as ready to cut it open to see if it by chance carried in its belly the golden ring wherewith i was to wed the golden however such is the gratitude of nature to man that this little thoughtless act of kindness had brought me face to face with was it the golden girl end of chapter three book two chapter four tis of nicolette and her bower in the wildwood but i have all this time left the reader without any formal descriptive introduction to this whimsical young lady angler not without reason for like any really charming personality she was very difficult to picture paint a woman as our young friend alister said faces that fall into types you can describe or at all events label in such a way that the reader can identify them but those faces that consist mainly of spiritual effect and physical bloom the change with everything they look upon the light in which ebbs out flows with every changing tide of the soul these you have to love to know and to worship and to portray now the face of nicolette as i learned in time to call her was just soul and bloom perhaps mainly bloom i never noticed whether she had any other features except her eyes i suppose she had a nose a little lace pocket handkerchief i have by me at the moment is almost too small to be evidence on that important point as i walked by her side that may morning i was only conscious of her voice and her exquisite girlhood for though she talked with the aplomb of a woman of the world a passionate candour and simple ardour in her manner would have betrayed her had her face not plainly declared her the incarnation of twenty but if she were twenty years young she was equally twenty years old and twenty years old in some respects is the greatest age attained to by man or woman in this she rather differed from alastor of whom otherwise she was the female counterpart her talk and something rather in her voice than her talk soon revealed her as a curious mixture of youth and age 
of dreamer and disillusione one soon realized that she was too young was hoping too much from life to spend one day's with yet she had just sufficiently that touch of languor which puts one at once ease though indeed it was rather the languor of waiting for what was going to happen than the weariness of experience gone by she was weary not because of the past but because the fairy theatre of life still kept its curtain down and forced her to play over and over again the impatient overture of her dreams i have no doubts that it was largely nervousness that kept the mysterious playwright so long fumbling behind the scenes for it was obvious that it would be no ordinary sort of play no everyday domestic drama that would satisfy this young lady to whom life had given by way of prologue the inestimable blessing of wealth and the privilege as a matter of course of choosing as she would among the grooms that is the bridegrooms of the romantic british aristocracy she had made youth's common mistake of beginning life with books which can only be used without danger by those who are in a position to test their statements youth naturally believes everything that is told it especially in books now books are simply professional liars about life and the books that are best worth reading are those which lie the most beautifully yet in fairness we must add that they are liars not with intent to mislead but merely with the tenderest purpose to console they are the good samaritans that find us robbed of all our dreams by the roadside of life bleeding and weeping and desolate and such is their skill and wealth and goodness of heart that they not only heal up our wounds but restore to us the lost property of our dreams on one condition that we never travel with them again in the daylight a library is a better world built by the brains and hearts of poets and dreamers as a refuge from the real world outside and in it alone is to be found the land of milk and honey which it which it promises milk and honey would have been an appropriate inscription for the delicious little library which parents who i surmised doted on nicolette in vain had allowed her to build in a wild woodland corner of her ancestral park half a mile away from the great house where for all its corridors and galleries she could never feel at all events spiritually alone all that was almost sugared and musical and generally delusive in the old library of her father's had been brought out to this little woodland library and to that nucleus of old leather-bound poets and romancers long since dead yet alive and singing on their shelves as any bird in the sunny boughs outside my young lady's private purse had added all that was most sugared and musical and generally delusive in the vellum-bound japanese paper literature of our own luxurious day nor were poets and romancers from oversea in their seeming simple paper covers but with oh such complicated and subtle insides absent from the court which nicolette held there in the greenwood 
never was such a nest of singing birds. All day long, to the ear of the spirit, there was in this little library a sound of harping and singing, and the telling of tales, songs and tales of a world that never was, yet shall ever be. Here, day by day, Nicolette fed her young soul on the nightingale's tongues of literature, and put down her book only to listen to the nightingale's tongues outside. Yea, sun, moon, and stars were all in the conspiracy to lie to her of the loveliness of the world and the good intentions of life. And now, thus unexpectedly, I found myself joining the nefarious conspiracy. Ah, well, was I not twenty myself, and full of dreams? End of Book Two, Chapter Four Book Two, Chapter Five Tis of Alcusin and Nicolette Thus it was that we lunched together amid the books and birds in an exquisite solitude adieu, for the ringer of the silver bell had disappeared, having left a dainty meal in readiness for two. "'You see, you were expected,' said Nicolette, with her pretty laugh. "'I dreamed I should have a visitor to-day, and told Susan to lay the lunch for two. "'You mustn't be surprised at that,' she added mischievously. "'It has often happened before. "'I dream that dream every other night, and Susan lays out for two every day. "'She knows my whims.' knows that the extra knife and fork are for the fairy knight that may turn up in the afternoon, as I tell her. To find the sleepless princess, I added, thinking at the same time one of those irrelevant asides that will go through the brain of thirty, that the woman who could get her share of kisses nowadays must neither slumber nor sleep. A certain great poet, I think it was Byron, objected to seeing women in the act of eating. He thought that eating should be done in private. What a curiously perverse opinion! For surely, woman never shows to better advantage than in the dainty exercises of a dainty repast, and there is nothing more thrilling to a man than a meal alone with a woman he loves or is about to love. Perhaps, deep down, the reason is that there still vibrates in the masculine blood the thrilling surprise of the moment when man first realized that the angel-woman was built upon the same carnivorous principles as his grosser self. That is one of the first heart-beating surprises that came upon the boy Columbus as he sets out to discover the new world of woman and, indeed, his surprise has not seldom deepened into admiration, as he has found that not only does woman eat, but frequently eats a lot. This privilege of seeing woman eat is the earliest granted of those delicate animal intimacies, the fuller and fuller confiding, of which plays not the least important part, and ever such a sweet one even in a highly transcendental affection it is this gradual humanizing of the divine female that brings about the spiritualizing of the unregenerate male in the earliest stages of love 
the services are small that we are privileged to do for the loved one but if we are allowed to sit at meat with her ever a royal condensation it is ours at least to pass her the salt to see that she is never kept waiting a moment for the mustard or the pepper to cut the bread for her with geometrical precision and to lean as near her warm shoulder as we dare to pour out for her the sacred wine yes for sure i was twenty again for the performance of these simple services for nicolette gave me a thrill of pure boyish pleasure such as i had never expected to feel again and did she not make a night of me by gently asking if i would be so kind as to carve the chicken and how she laughed quite disproportionately at my schoolboy story of the man who being asked to carve a pigeon said he thought they had better spin for a wood carver as it seemed to be a wood pigeon and while we ate and drank and laughed and chatted the books around us were weaving their spells even before the invention of printing books were love's purveyors was it not a book that sent paolo and francesca forever wandering on that stormy wind of passion and death and nowadays the part played by books in human drama is greater than we perhaps realize apart from their serious influence as determining destinies of the character what endless opportunities they afford to lovers who perhaps are denied all other meeting-places than may be found on the tell-tale pages of a marked volume the method is so easy and so unsuspect you have only to put faint pencil marks against the tenderest passages in your favorite new poet and lend the volume to her and she has only to leave here and there the dropped violet of a timid confirmatory initial for you to know your fate and what a touchstone books thus become indeed they simplify love-making from every point of view with books so inexpensive and accessible to all as they are to-day no one need run any risks of marrying the wrong woman he has only to put her through an unconscious examination by getting her to read and mark a few of his favorite authors and he is thus in possession of the master clues of her character with a list of her month's reading and a photograph a man ought to be able to make up his mind about any given woman even though he has never spoken to her name your favorite writer should be one of the first questions in the engagement catechism there is indeed no such shortcut to knowledge of each other as a talk about books one short afternoon is enough for any two book lovers though they may have met for the first time in the morning to make up their minds whether or not they have been born for each other if you are agreed say in admiring meredith hardy omar khayyam and Maeterlinck, to take four particularly test authors there is nothing to prevent your marrying at once indeed a love for any one of these significant writers will be enough not to speak of an admiration for alcassine and nicolette now nicolette and i soon found that we had all these and many other writer in common and before our lunch was ended we were nearer to each other than many old friends 
the heart does not more love the heart that loves it than the brain loves the brain that comprehends it and whatever else was to befall us nicolette and i were already in love with each other's brains whether or not the malady would spread till it reached the heart is the secret of some future chapter end of book two chapter five end of book two end of section six